Let's have a word of prayer before we get started. Father, we are just overwhelmed with your goodness this morning, and we're so grateful for the deep sense of your presence. We pray that you would take us even deeper, Lord, into the things of you. Pray that it wouldn't just be a sermon, Lord, but you would make this one of those moments where you impact us deeply and that we walk out changed. We want to say, Lord, we're not content with who we are or where we are yet. You've satisfied us, but we're still thirsty for more of you. So we give you praise and glory and honor. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, we worship you. We praise you. You are God. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I get into the message, I want to thank you for... um, Many of you are aware my folks were here last weekend, and they were in the service last week, and um, you were so kind to them, and I just was so touched. Uh, they remarked several times after the service, uh, they said, Jim, you have such a loving church family, and um, that just meant so much to me. I wasn't even sure they'd come. They're not believers, especially my dad. He's a, sort of a devout atheist these days and uh, very concerned about their salvation. But if you're like me, you love uh, being with that generation, the World War II generation and the generations even preceding that. Um, I don't know if this has been your experience, but my dad will not allow me to pay for anything. Um, How many of you have folks like that who just, every dinner bill, at restaurant bill or whatever, they, they won't let you... Um, assert yourself, and it, it, it can get ugly. And uh, so, so I talked with my mom and dad about coming down and invited them and, you know, knew that my dad was paying for the airfare and for a rental car, and so I thought, I'll get him this time. I will arrange in advance to pay for the hotel. And so I booked him a hotel, booked them a hotel, and... Um, When I made the reservation, I said, now how can I uh, make sure that my credit card is charged for this? Because he's going to come in and he's going to do whatever he can to uh, get it charged to his credit card. And so they said, well, Mr. Grinnell, we can send you an authorization form that make, you know, where your card is on the form and Everything will get charged to your card. I said, great, you know, email it to me. I filled it out. I faxed it back to them. And then I jotted myself a note to call the hotel desk the day of their arrival and make sure that the clerks at the desk would know what was up. And so I did that. And, um, you know, I said, my dad will be coming in. And, and the, the clerk said, oh, are you, are you Mr. Grinnell's son? And I said, yes. And she said, He's already been here, and, and I couldn't stop him. He, he reached over the desk and swiped his card. <laughs> and I said, what about the authorization? I thought everything was, was all set. You know? And she said, well, I'll, I'll do my best to work it out. Well, of course, I had no confidence by this time that 
So um, we had a day of golf, which is his big thing, and Brian and uh, Jason Lawrence and my dad and I were out on the golf course, and it, was, it seemed like a soft, teachable moment between me and my dad. And so I said, Dad, I want to I talk to you about the hotel bill. And he said, no. You know, and I said, no, Dad, just listen to me. Just listen to me. I said, uh, you're paying for the airfare. You're paying for uh, the rental car. You're going to take us out to eat Sunday after church. Let me pay for the hotel. It's good. It's righteous. I'm an adult. Don't look at me as your son right now. Look at me as an adult. Look at me, you know. And, and he says, no. And so, so then the morning they were leaving, I, um, I, 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 they invited me to come have breakfast with them at the hotel. So I, I went, I thought, I'll go a few minutes early, talk to the clerks again, and make sure when he checks out, that, um, that um, he doesn't, get, doesn't win. And so, so, yeah, game on, right? Now, I mean, this is, so um, he, uh, so I'm at the desk, and I'm talking to both clerks, because I, I don't want him to go to a clerk that I haven't talked to. So I'm talking to both clerks, and um, I just get finished, and they're laughing, and they understand, and, I said, trick him. Do whatever you have to, but don't let him pay. And uh, just at that moment, he walked up. But he didn't see that it was me. So I just kind of backed away and got behind him, and I said, this is him. This is him. And so they're laughing and trying to stifle their laughter. And, and, um, and so I went to the dining room and sat with my mom. And when he came... He, he plopped down the hotel bill, and inside was a check made out to Tulsa Christian Fellowship for the exact amount of the hotel bill. And he said something like, you may have won this battle, but you haven't won the war, or something like that. And my mom, you know, looked across at me with a little mischief in her eye, and she said, you can rip it up. And so I said to my dad, I can rip it up. And he said, if you rip up a check that I've written to your church, you're going to hell. <laughs> and uh, I, when I told Laura this story, she said, you should have told him that hell is mighty convenient for him when he wants it to be, you know. <laughs> So anyway, I deposited the check. You'll be glad to know. So anyway, I do thank you for your, your care for them. And uh, Johanna, they especially enjoyed talking with you. They just loved their conversation with you and said so many times. So thank you. The week before my parents were here, I had a friend and his wife, uh, mutual friends with Laura and me, um, a minister from Arkansas, a Methodist minister, Donnie Hudson. I went to seminary with Donnie. And we were having a meal, and he made this comment. We were talking about the Lord, and he made this comment that kind of is the impetus for this sermon, along with my folks being here. He said, I, 
I have this thought that if people could only see the gospel clearly, they couldn't help but believe. And I kind of had a, a hesitation about accepting that. I thought, yeah, I, I, I can understand what you're saying, but I'm not sure it's that easy because just that week I had read John 7:17, 7, where um, the Pharisees are telling Jesus that, you know, you know, they're challenging him, and Jesus says, um, if any man's will is to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. Meaning that human will and human willfulness will often keep a person from Christ. Even if all the answers have been, all the questions have been answered, we still have that tricky little thing called human willfulness. And we'll get to that later in the message. Keith Green has a song, How Can They Live Without Jesus? And uh, the first few lyrics are this, How can they live without Jesus? How can they live without God's love? How can they feel so at home down here when there's so much more up above? Thrown away things that matter, they hold on to things that don't. The world has gone crazy, but soon maybe a lot more are going to know. Or maybe they don't understand it, or maybe they just haven't heard, or maybe we're not doing all we can living up to his holy word. My question this morning is not how can they live without Jesus, but why won't they believe? Why won't people believe? Scripture gives us at least five reasons why people won't believe. I'm sure there are more, but uh, I'd like to highlight five for you this morning. Uh, the first one is ignorance. And I think that there are three types of ignorance uh, to my way of thinking. Type one is never having heard. Um, this is explained in Romans 10, 12 through 15. And let's uh, read that together. Romans chapter 10, 12 through 15. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not, not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. The word ignorance is not mentioned in this passage, but obviously not ever having heard the name of Jesus or the gospel is a form of ignorance toward the gospel. Now you'll note on the screen I have many even in Tulsa. Um, I remember... Some of you may remember Richard Presley, who was a member of this church uh, many years ago. He left TCF and uh, was a part of, uh, I can't remember what church for a while, and then he started his own church on the west side called The Source. And they were, seeing, they were having great success seeing young people come to Christ. And he said to me, Jim, 
you would not believe how many young people there are in this city who have never, not only never entered a church, but they have never heard about Jesus. It's hard to believe that in Tulsa that could be the case. Nevertheless, it's true. So there's type one type of ignorance. A second type is having heard but acted wrongly because of sin. This is um, highlighted in Acts 3, chapter uh, Acts 3, 12 through 19. This is right after Peter has said to the man at the, at the gate of the temple, silver and, and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. The man rises and walks, and now he's clinging to Peter. He's just clinging to him, and people are rushing together, starting in verse 12. When Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now note verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So these acted in ignorance because of sin. Now there's a possible third type, and uh, there's an author named Paul Little uh, who's deceased now, but he, he, orga he went around to college campuses in the United States and probably Europe um, and um, talked to students, thousands and thousands of students about Christ. And he uh, believed that all of the honest intellectual questions about Christ could be grouped into seven basic questions. The first one is, what about the heathen? The second one is, is Christ the only way to God? Why do the innocent suffer? How can miracles be possible? Isn't the Bible full of errors? Isn't Christian experience only psychological? And won't a good moral life get me to heaven? When you come up against these honest questions, assuming they're from an honest heart, John Stott writes this. He says, we cannot pander to a man's intellectual arrogance, but we must cater to his intellectual integrity. The total personality, intellect, emotions, and will must be converted. I was driving this morning to church. I was thinking about that quote, and I was just thanking God that he has totally converted me. My intellect, what, it, what little of it there is, my will, my emotions are all his. Amen? How many of you can say amen to that? Thank you, Lord.
for converting all of me. The scripture says, always be prepared to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Ignorance is certainly one reason people don't believe. But a second is just good old-fashioned idolatry. The essence of idolatry is loving a created thing more than the creator. We read a good account of this in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In college, I had a writer friend who I was witnessing to, and um, by God's grace, she was brought right to the place of receiving Jesus. There was no more ignorance. There was no more, uh, no reason to hold back. And I asked her, so will you accept Christ now? And she said, no. And I said, why not? And she said, because I'm a writer and I want to be a professional writer. And I know that if I receive Jesus, I'll have peace. And it will take the, the edge and the darkness and the pathos out of my writing ability. So therefore, I'm not going to receive Christ. What an example of an idol. What an example of an idol. I had a family member who told me that if they received Jesus, they knew that that would mean that he would be first in, and demand his first love rather than his wife being his first love. An idol. An idol. Jesus talked about the desire for other things in Mark 4, 18 and 19, in the parable of the sower and the seeds, and others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The Apostle Paul said, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's another song that one of my clients told me about called Clear the Stage. Have any of you heard that song? Clear the Stage. Here are a few of the lyrics. 
clear the stage and set the sound and lights ablaze, if that's the measure that it takes to crush the idols. Chuck the pews and all the decorations too, until the congregation's few then have revival. Tell your friends that this is where the party ends. Until you've broken, until you're broken for your sins, you can't be social. Then seek the Lord and wait for what he has in store and know that great is your reward and just be hopeful. The chorus is, because I can sing all I want to. Yes, I can sing all I want to. I can sing all I want to and still get it wrong. Worship is more than a song. One more verse, anything I put before my God is an idol. Anything I want with all my heart is an idol. Anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol. Anything that I give all my love is an idol. We must not worship something that's not even worth it. Clear the stage and make some space for the one who deserves it. Hallelujah. Let that be, Lord, true of us, that there's only one on the stage. A third reason they don't believe is what the Bible calls captivity. The Bible often calls unbelievers captives. Here's a couple of scriptures. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary spirits, uh, excuse me, principles of the world, and not according to Christ. In the Truth Project, Dr. Tackett is talking about the cosmic battle of truth versus lies and how we, uh, if we're not careful, we will be held captive to lies. I was trying to think of a good example of that, and I thought of the lie as an example that living together before marriage is a good thing. Do you know that um, there's a, there's a, a, a project called the Mar Marriage Project at Rutgers University? It's been going on for several years. Uh, the two main writers are David Popino and Barbara Defoe Whitehead. Uh, they became infamous with the political correct community when they wrote that Dan Quayle was right years ago. That was the title of an, uh, an article that appeared in the Atlantic Monthly. But they're still writing and um, still researching. And their re recent research says that 66% uh, of high school senior boys and 61% of high school girls indicated that they agreed or mostly agreed with the statement, it is usually a good idea for a couple to live together before getting married in order to find out whether they really get along. And three quarters, that'd be 75% of the students, stated that a man and a woman who live together without being married are either, quote, experimenting with a worthwhile alternative lifestyle, unquote, or doing their own thing and not affecting anyone else. Here's an example of a lie in our society. Every study, secular and um, religious, all find the same thing, that living together before marriage uh, greatly, greatly increases the chance 
that you will divorce. In fact, there's one study, it's a 10-year study, where they, they um, got 100 couples, their sample was 100 couples who lived together before they got married. 10 years later, only 15 of those couples were still together. So if you, if, you know, the divorce rate right now is somewhere between 45 and 50 percent. In this case, 85 percent um, were divorced within 10 years who had lived together. So here's a lie that holds our society captive. And I have firsthand experience with this, uh, having even Christian couples referred to me who are already living together for premarital counseling. And as I challenge them on this from a spiritual view, point of view and also from research, uh, I have yet to have one move apart. And uh, Asbury, Asbury United Methodist had me come and speak to their marriage mentoring group about you know, what can we do to get couples to move apart who are already living together. Uh, they, they actually go so far as to provide housing, uh, free housing, and so forth. And they wanted me to tell them how to make this work because they're having no success as well. What a lie. What a lie. There's a um, wonderful um, book called Do Hard Things by uh, the, uh, a couple of twin um, teenagers. Uh, they're the sons of Greg Harris. You, know, you guys know Greg Harris, the one who started uh, a lot of homeschooling. Was it Chef? I don't know. But he started, he, you know, big, big guy in homeschooling and He's got some, some twin sons who have started a blog um, called The Revolution. Let me read to you a little bit about it. Uh, with over 35 million hits to their website, Alex and Brett Harris are leading the charge in a growing movement of Christian young people who are rebelling against the low expectations of their culture by choosing to do hard things for the glory of God. Written when they were 18 years old, Do Hard Things is the Harris Twins' revolutionary message in its purest and most compelling form, giving readers a tangible glimpse of what is possible for teens who actively resist cultural lies that limit their potential. Combating the idea of adolescence as a vacation from responsibility, the authors weave together biblical insights, modern examples, etc., to redefine the teen years. Here's an example uh, that Laura made me aware of in our previous Bible study uh, for college students. This is about the Vikings. This is one of, their, one of their writings. The Vikings were fierce pirates and warriors who terrorized Europe from the late 700s to about A.D. 1100. Brutal and fearsome, they looted and burned parts of England, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Russia, and Spain. Other Europeans were so frightened of the Vikings that a special prayer for protection was offered in the churches. God deliver us from the fury of the Northmen. Most historians attribute the Vikings' devastating effectiveness to their warships, which were swift and light and could be easily dragged ashore. This allowed them to strike suddenly and then quickly retreat to the safety of the sea. However, my wise father has identified another contributing factor one that holds incredible significance for all of us, the Vikings rode themselves into battle. 
Unlike the Romans, who used galley slaves to row their great warships, the Vikings took full responsibility for this strenuous activity. This tells us two things. One, the Vikings didn't feel that rowing was beneath them. They pursued competence in every area pertaining to their success. And two, they were seriously ripped. No wonder the people of Europe were afraid of these guys. Their muscles were moving 20-ton boats through the water. Here's the revolution's challenge. Do hard things. Learn a lesson from the Vikings. Do hard things and you will carry the battle every time. If you are willing to take on responsibilities that others delegate or neglect, you will gain the benefits of that exertion. Isn't that good? Think about that applied to staying sexually pure until marriage and uh, the sexual discipline, that that will, how that will serve you well in your marriage. Captivity. Another term is the term blinded, as in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Let me read that to you. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, one tool the enemy uses in our culture is uh, too many voices, too much stimulation, too much noise, too many distractions. Amen? You guys know that. I remember, Gordon, you preaching about that some time ago. I was at a uh, breakfast this week with Terry Ligon, and the speaker was a friend of mine, Dr. Stuart Holderness, who um, his testimony is uh, along these lines of what it's like to be a child with ADD. His testimony is from ADD to PhD, because now he's a PhD. But he, he told this funny and yet tragically sad story of himself and what it's like to be a young child struggling with this neurological disorder. Now, I know that there's a lot of debate in our society that ADD is, is, is just is not real. Uh, my contention is it is real, even though kids have often been over-medicated and, and over-diagnosed. But Stewart's gave three little descriptions, many descriptions of what it's like. He said it's it's difficult, there's a difficulty resisting distractions to reach a goal. Um, he also said it's the inability to stop, evaluate, and let the past inform you in the present. Imagine what that's like if, you, if the past doesn't inform you about the present. You keep making the same mistake over and over and over again. Finally, one last little mini definition. He said it's like being supercharged on Red Bull all the time. He said kindergarten started well. The first few weeks, uh, he, he enjoyed very much. In fact, he got the lead in the kindergarten play, and he was able to sing the song with great gusto, The Hills Are Alive. But from there, it all went downhill. 
Stewart said. By the second grade, his desk was permanently in the hall. He had frequent flyer miles to the principal's office, and his self-esteem was going down, down, down. He couldn't figure out why nobody liked him and why uh, everyone was yelling at him all the time. He was convinced by this small age that his father hated him because the school kept calling his father, who was an orthopedic surgeon, and having to call him. And, his, of course, his father didn't care for that. He, he had said, I eventually became immune to criticism and um, woke up every morning hoping for a better day, a different outcome. But by the end of the day, he felt very beaten down and discouraged, unable to resist distractions to reach a goal. And I think on a spiritual level, this is often what the enemy does with us, is he, he keeps us distracted. I was mentioning Stuart's story to someone and close to me, and she said, uh, well, I might as well tell you, it was Laura. She said, <laughs> who, who also struggled not so much with ADD, but some dyslexia and, and some other uh, issues that are similar, she said, I couldn't figure out why kids didn't want to join me in jumping from desk to desk in the classroom or climbing the highest tree as fast as I could. I thought, you know, they're so slow. They're so dull. Come on, you guys. Get with the program. Uh, and so that's the way a person uh, with these kind of disorders feel. Linda can tell us from the, the little lighthouse how there are those who, who just cannot feed their nervous systems fast enough. Correct, Linda? And they're, they're constantly fidgeting. So blinded, spiritually, the enemy can keep us blind by continually distracting us from the truth. But I love 2 Corinthians 11.3. I hope others love this verse. But I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The last reason is willfulness, and I want you to note the five I wills of Isaiah chapter 14. This one you might want to turn to. Um, this is a description or a prophecy against the king of Babylon, but behind the king of Babylon, it's a picture of the fall of Satan from heaven. I think this is a hermeneutical device called apostrophe, when, when two people are being talked about at once, someone behind the actual person who's being talked about. So starting in verse 12, it says this, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have been weakened, or you have weakened the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Again, here's John 7:17. If any man's will is to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. 
So even though there are honest intellectual questions, so often the resistance is, I do not want to submit my will to anyone. Paul Little talks about this in his book, How to Give Away Your Faith. He said, man's basic problem is not intellectual, it's moral. I've had people tell me, you've answered every one of my questions to my satisfaction. After thanking them for the flattery, I've said, so are you ready to become a Christian then? And they've smiled and said sheepishly, well, no. Why not, I've inquired. Frankly, it would mean too radical a change in my way of life. Many people are not prepared to let anyone else, including God, run their lives. It's not that they can't believe. It's that they won't believe. And this is why my friend Donnie's comment uh, to me does not seem to be the whole truth. How many of you remember that classic Christian album, Slow Train A-Comin' by Bob Dylan? What a great, great album. I don't think he hung in there very long, but... Let me read just a few lyrics. How many have heard this song? Gotta Serve Somebody. Oh, that's such a good song. I'll try to do his voice. No, I'm kidding. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You might be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor. They may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it might be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Let me, there's a ton of these, but let me do one more, just that's kind of silly at the end. You may call me Terry, you may call me Timmy, you may call me Bobby, you may call me Zimmy, you may call me RJ, you may call me Ray, you may call me anything, but no matter what you say, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord but you're going to have to serve somebody. What a great song. What a great truth. Well, what can we do to help others believe? Um, I want to spend just maybe five minutes more on what we can do to help others believe. First of all, we can stay loving and gentle. Amen? There is an emphasis on gentleness when we share our faith. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but let me show you three scriptures um, and notice the italicized uh, portions. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. Always be ready to make a defense, yet with gentleness and reverence. And then Galatians 6.1. 
Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Does that minister to any of you, that, 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 that gentleness is important in reaching out to people uh, with the gospel? One last point here, you know, we have been all five of the things that we've talked about, haven't we? Each of us. How many here have been ignorant before? <laughs> or um, how many have been, uh, had an idol in their lives? How many of you have been captive to some kind of lie or blinded? And uh, how many have been willful? You know, we can have compassion for these people. Amen? We can have compassion, deep compassion, because we have been in all five of these arenas ourselves. Secondly, we can keep on praying and not lose heart. Really, this message is a call to go deeper in prayer and to be more persistent in prayer, which fits exactly with what Patty brought up here in that word during the worship time. Keep on praying. Patty quoted this verse, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Luke 8, 15, talking about the seed in the good soil, it bears fruit with what? Perseverance. Matthew 7, 7, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. And for those of you who like quotes, here's a great one from Winston Churchill. Fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. <laughs> I think that's you, James. <laughs> Number three, we can strengthen our ability to defend the hope that's within us that 1 Peter 3.15 calls us to. You know, we all have bricks in our wall, strong bricks, strong beliefs, and beliefs that we hold a little bit more tenuously. One thing we can do is strengthen those weak bricks. Um, know what you believe and why. I want to recommend some of Paul Little's work here. He's written a big book called Know What You Believe, Know Why You Believe. Uh, but I think you can get it all in this book called How to Give Away Your Faith by Paul Little. Pay special attention to chapter six, the one about how to answer those seven questions that um, he highlighted before. We can strengthen our ability to defend the hope that's within us. Four is to keep on talking about the Lord. Brother Bill used to say, gossip the gospel. Remember him saying that? And uh, let the people in your sphere of influence know that you're a Christian. This was a point that Gordon brought in a, a couple messages ago about how when you pull into a Starbucks, what, what does that person know about you? Is it just that they know how to make your coffee the way you want it? Or is it they know that they're encountering that, that person who's, who's talking about the Lord to them? And so that's a challenge to all of us, but let's, let's be fervent about that. And then pray specifically for the gift of repentance. I've, I've thought about... Um, how much have I prayed that for my folks over the years? But I, I can pray more for the gift of repentance. It's a gift. God, it's a supernatural gift to a hardened heart. 
is that gift of repentance. We can pray through these five areas in behalf of the person that's on our hearts to pray for. We can fast and pray for them. I remember Bishop Anguko saying how he fasted for three weeks for his son and then talked to his son and, and uh, nothing changed. So he fasted another three weeks and then his son was, was gloriously saved. And we can gather others to pray with us. We have a missionary prayer band uh, that meets on Sunday mornings. Maybe someone would like to organize an unsaved loved one's prayer band where we, we pray fervently for each other's relatives and children. I want to end with a letter that I received from Ron Luce. Uh, Ron is the founder of Teen Mania. And um, he sent this on September 15th of this year. He said, as a friend of the ministry, I wanted to share with you what has been happening in our family this summer and encourage you to continue praying for your own loved ones. A few weeks ago, my father passed away. My girls and I were able to visit him on what turned out to be the last day of his life. It was very moving to see him in the hospital, hooked up to oxygen for each breath. Even though I did not know it at the time, I literally fed him his last meal. At one point, he reached over, grabbed my hand, and gazed distinctly at me. Since he was unable to talk, this was his way of connecting with me. At the end of my visit, I released him and said, Dad, it's time to go be with Jesus. Not two hours after we left, we got a call saying he slipped into a coma. The very next morning, he graduated from this earth to be with Jesus. At his memorial service, I was able to talk about the most precious moment I shared with my father, walking forward with him in front of 50,000 men as he chose to commit his life to follow Christ at a Promise Keepers event. At the end of the memorial, a number of people committed their lives to Jesus, and everyone else renewed their love and passion for him. This whole experience just fueled my passion to reach those who do not know God. Many of you have heard bits and pieces of my story, and you know that for most of his life, my dad did not know the Lord. As I would go out ministering to teens week after week, my heart would cry out for God to reach my father. That moment of walking to the altar with him came only after years and years of praying for him, starting conversations with him about God, and finally getting him in an arena where he could have a real life-changing encounter with God. If you have loved ones that you have been praying for over the years, or if you know a teenager who seems unreachable, I just want to encourage you to stay the course. Don't give up. Pray for them every day. Connect with them and keep giving them the opportunity to join you in a place where they will encounter God. Let's believe God to do a miracle in our families. And he signs it, still consumed, Ron Luce. <clears throat> if you've grown weary, or <clears throat> if you are holding up your arms for someone you love, 
or lax, maybe you've grown lax in your prayers and you'd like to start again, I'd like you to stand and I just want to pray for you along with myself. You might just picture that person as we pray and in your heart while I pray, just cry out to God for that person. Father, we want to start by just declaring that you have graciously saved us, not by our works, but by your grace, as Hallett quoted to begin the service. It's by grace that we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God that no one should boast. We also acknowledge, Lord, that we have been ignorant, we have had idols, we have been captive and blinded, and we have been stubbornly willful, and yet you have overcome those things and shown us the light of your glorious gospel. We give you thanks for that, Father. We give you thanks for that. We ask that we would not grow weary. We ask that we would not grow lax. In fact, Lord, we ask that you would move us to a spirit-led aggressiveness in prayer. We pray, Father, that we would experience fresh bursts of faith and compassion for those that we have targeted, that you have led us to target, that we would be quickened by your Holy Spirit that rivers of living water would flow through us. We would know what to do, when to do it, when to hold back. Father, we ask that for a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit as we pray for those that have yet to know you. And we pray that we would be persistent. Give us that gift of persistence, Lord. And then we pray for those who we have in mind, Father, that they would be ignorant no longer, that you would tear down the idols and the captivities and the blindnesses that they are under. And Father, let them see you. Let them see you in all your beauty, in all your glory and fearfulness. Let them see you and fall on their knees and worship you in Jesus' wonderful name. Father, we just uh, commit this word to you and pray that it would go deep, that it wouldn't just be a reminder, but it would be a life changer. So, Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be spirit-led. Help us to be consumed with you and seeing you reach those that we love and even beyond. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can just remain.